one of the things that I've noticed doing these podcasts is that so many people have told me, wow, I've never been asked to tell my story before. Thank you. And it hits me every time. Yes. Because you see, like, people need that. Welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, founder of Be Better Media and a mom of four, passionate about human connection. Throughout my journey, I have experienced many What I Meant to Say moments. But since life doesn't give us do-overs, I've created a space to reflect and tell our stories again with a little more grace for ourselves and the hope that we can help others and be better for having listened. Welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, and I am joined today by Michelle Burnaby, a very pioneering and innovative RN. Um, And we connected through a conversation about finding better medicine for health and mental health and that journey that so many Americans are on. And I'm just really excited to have this conversation today. Um, Thank you so much for joining me, Michelle. Yes, Wendy and the Better Media team. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I love what you guys are doing. Awesome. Well, I mean, we might as well dive right into it. We know that the health, wellness, and mental health conversation is all connected and so thick out there in the um, American public in the way that we're dealing with so many of the things that we're coming up against. Um, the challenges we're facing are great. And when we connected on a conversation and I heard about the way that you have come to your medical journey being an RN, I was just compelled to want to dig deeper into that conversation. So um, yeah. tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to this health and wellness field. Yeah. So my background into nursing I wanted to travel, you know, it was like a, the way I could see as a young woman, me traveling, which maybe plays into how women are socialized, <laughs> that nursing was the career in which I found that. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to do Doctors Without Border. I, you know, I have a heart um, of service. So I think that's why nurse also Beautiful. is maybe what came to mind. Um and I loved working with kids, and I loved working with kids with cancer. And so I'd spent a lot of my summers at Camp Ronald McDonald for good times as a camp counselor and was just in love with that work. And then I came to New York um, for nursing school at Columbia University, and I got to spend one hour in a psychiatric emergency room. We all got to rotate through this psychiatric emergency room, and we had one hour. Um, and I had never seen anything like acute psychiatric emergencies in New York City. Um, You know, I should back up a little. I grew up in um, Southern California and Hawaii on the island of Maui. And so um, I think very sheltered to some of the acute mental health crises that you see in an urban setting um, like New York City. And so I didn't understand what I was seeing. I didn't understand the acuity. I didn't understand why the doors were locked. I didn't understand why you couldn't touch the patient. I didn't I didn't understand what was happening in this little room. But there was a, one of those spiritual callings, you know, an emotional turning point in my life where I knew I had to figure it out. I knew I had to be there. It also, you know, I'm Italian and love eating and sharing food. It was like the one team in the hospital where they always had food. Like there, someone had always brought in some sort of cooking, like the social worker or the nurse or even the nurse's aide or the doctor. They were always 
sharing food as they were doing this work. So it was like a, a very unique healthcare bubble where it was like actual teamwork. It was like a group of really caring people, which you don't always get in healthcare, just as we all know when we've been through the system. Um, and then it, I did not, I was just curious what is happening. Yeah. And, and and how old were you when you um, happened upon the emergency room? Yes, that is a good question. So it was my second bachelor's. Um, so I was probably 24-ish. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still so early in life, especially given like you when you describe your upbringing and, and just knowing the differences um, of how our early life can really shape where we end up and how... Yes and how we relate to people and connect with people and mm -hmm. it's i see that so often um you know when when we don't have that safety and security in in young life it really does shape the way that future life goes yeah find and you know a mentor or an evolutionary path of some sort that can take us off of that Absolutely. And I think it was kind of the opposite. You know, not no one was dealt a full deck of cards, as one of my mentors says. Yeah. But I did, you know, I grew up in Hawaii with this nourishing land with a lot of like history and, and almost magic and spirituality and then and, and nourishment. And then this psychiatric emergency room was kind of the opposite of that. It was cold. Oh. It was sterile. There wasn't much magic happening um, or healing. And I think the other thing it sparked in me was this feeling of justice. Like it, it was an injustice. What was happening was an injustice. And I remember, you know, saying to my level nurse mentor, like, I'm going to change this. You know, I was like 23, like this, what's happening here? It has to be better. I'm going to change it. And she, I'll never forget, she told me, do not try to change it. The way to survive in this hospital is to be like a cat and slink around in the background. And she's like, or, or else you'll be eaten alive. And she was probably, she was a little bit right. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. come against You're the hitting, that's, that's really powerful. And you are hitting on something there. I mean, I think going up against the giant gorilla of healthcare <laughs> in America is a scary proposition, right? <laughs> yeah. I always, I mean, media can be the same way. And, and you feel like mm -hmm. while you can change one life at a time, I'm sure, you know, you make an impact on every person you come into contact with, but how we change that on a large scale basis. And I know um, that you're really into systems change and yeah. looking at how we can take the things we learn and, and, and really multiply them for a greater world. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Because it became um, a revolving door. Um, of suffering, right? And I think, you know, I um, have a lot of flaws, but especially in that context, I was a very healing presence. I, mm -hmm. You know, my up, up, upbringing um, made me present in a different way. Uh, and what do you mean? Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? That's interesting. Yeah, like, you know, I, I grew up on, on a magical island, right? Where it was easygoing and and there's a lot of nature and maybe my nerve, you know, I, one way to help people visualize is when most people meet me and maybe now that I've lived in New York so long, this doesn't hold true, but most people just think I'm high. They're just perpetually high, right? Uh -huh. Because I am just so calm and easygoing. What that's really hitting on is the resonance of Maui, is the resonance of Hawaii, is 
is a legacy of that nourishment um, and, and that land. Um, that's what it is. So I come into a psychiatric emergency room and I just have that almost Hawaiian spirit, right? And and grew up with totally different norms. Like we didn't wear shoes in Hawaii. That was, you know, you could like sit on the floor, you can eat. Just the norms were were different and, and more in touch with the land. So like if a patient was on the floor crying, I I would sit on the floor, you know, and get to that level. Like that's just was absolutely intuitive. And it's intuitive to people when they're in touch with land and themselves and other humans. But as you know, and it's core to kind of your mission, there's so much that like separates us from all from our humanity. And yeah. then we forget, we forget those very important things. Yeah, yeah, I know. And one of the things that consistently comes through for me in these conversations is that, you know, addiction is the opposite of connection. Mm. Yes. And it's something that when I first heard that quote, it just, it was such a zinger for me. Mm. I realized why um, I'm so passionate about human connection because it really is so healing. Yes. And people don't realize it. And then as we become more and more disconnected in the world, um, it maybe it feels like we're more connected than we've ever been, but human to human, we're more disconnected and is my feeling. Oh, absolutely. And especially right? since COVID. And I, you know, you can all, if you're in touch with yourself, you there's the resonance of the macro always within yourself. So I can even feel that resonance of isolation, disconnected and being socially awkward. And yeah, since COVID. So it's gotten even... Right. Yeah. yeah, it's gotten even worse. But to the point that you're saying, you know, one of I was just listening to this. It was the biggest longitudinal longitudinal study on humans ever. You know, unfortunately, like most studies, it was only done on men. Although men, I think, starting in like the 1930s or something. Although they've incorporated women since, but it's the longest continuous research we have on humanity. And the question is, what makes humans happy? And their results thus far is human connection and relationships. It's not money. It's not jobs. It's not if you have kids. It's not if you don't have kids. It's human relationships and connection. Wow. Yeah. That, that gave me chills. And and I, I would love to see more on that study. We'll have to put that in the show notes because that, yeah, really, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of I, like I want to take this back to that one hour in the in the emergency room. And where did your medical career grow from there? Like how much more time did you spend? Yeah. And then where did you grow from there? Yeah. Uh, yes. So I got that one hour and um, I, I think I was just so excited about it. And I told my little nursing teacher um, and I think, you know, she was such a great woman. Her name was Rose. Um, and she went out of her way to facilitate the first internship the psyche I ever had they didn't really ever take students right it's not really one could argue it's not an appropriate place for a student and a novice to just be hanging out but I think like people could see my enchantment and they were kind of enchanted by the youthful energy and I'm like you know an okay person and to have around and so she was able to facilitate this internship um so I could stay there for 16 or however four to eight weeks, whatever the internship whatever was. Whatever the round was. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then that's when it was almost an overload of what I was seeing. Um, and thankfully, uh, 
I got a grant from Columbia uh, from the Macy's family to study narrative medicine at Columbia. And that became a huge lifeboat to help me hold um, and process everything I was seeing in that emergency room. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that word you just used, I had never heard until the first time I was on a call with you. Yeah. Narrative medicine. Yeah. And when you said it, I got chills like I'm getting now. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a thing. I remember I said that to you. And you yeah. said, oh, there's lots of studies and I've seen, I, I've looked at your stack that you started and I'm, I just want this concept to be out there, like front yes. and center and out loud because, so tell me more. People have probably never heard this term. What is narrative medicine? Yeah. So um, I'm going to use my words. You can Google narrative medicine and it comes out of Columbia University. Um, a brilliant, very humble and lovely Dr. Rita Sharon um, kind of birthed this concept. And to me, it's a powerful approach that uses storytelling and personal narratives to promote healing and well-being. And it's a double side. To me, I don't know if narrative medicine is as powerful in a vacuum, right? So you have to have the, the storyteller, and then you have to have someone who's deeply listening and holding that. And I think one of the m magical things about narrative medicine is depending on who's in the room and who's listening, um, the story and how how it forms even changes in that moment, right? So if it's just me or you, maybe if it was just me and you at a coffee table versus me and you at a, you know, in this podcast is changing what I'm saying and, you know, there's some interplay between the listeners that I don't even know somehow. And all of that is powerful and all of that is transformative and it transforms me and it transforms the listener and it brings us closer together and closer to ourselves. And it's just wonderful healing goodness. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how, yeah. how, is it, um, how do, how is that practice being engaged out there? The practice of narrative medicine? Yeah, that's great. Um, it can look a, a lot of ways. So what it looked like, you know, what it's looked like for me, um, and I, as a student of it, and I've, you know, worked with veterans, um, mm. other groups is choosing, you can, you can do two ways. One, you can choose a topic like a, a infamous narrative medicine icebreaker is tell me the story of your name. You know, and you have seven minutes to write down the story of your name, pencils down seven minutes, just drop it. And then you share and listen. And even that is healing with a group of strangers or a group of people you know. Um, and I've done that icebreaker like nine times and every time a different part of my own story of my name comes up and yeah. So it's just like the, um, yeah, that's powerful. It's so funny. Yeah. Like even yesterday, I mean, you know, and names are so generational, right? Like we, the ones that were like from my generation are not around like that. I don't know a lot of nobody's naming their daughter, Wendy anymore. But <laughs> when I went to Starbucks yesterday, the girl was like, Oh, from Peter Pan. And you, oh, cool. You it take it does there. That's a really powerful exercise. I I love it. And it took right when she said it. It took me back to, like my dad used to read us Peter Pan when I was little. Oh, right. Really. So I love like, that. I see how exactly like personally how that could work, and then how mm -hmm. the story comes from it, and you feel more understood. And 
one of the things that I've noticed doing these podcasts is that so many people have told me, wow, I've never been asked to tell my story before. Thank you. And it hits me every time. Yes. Because you see, like, people need that. And yeah. I think I ended up in this space because I needed that, but I always, I love being the listener. And so that's mm-hmm. another thing I really want to connect with when you said it takes a really deep and active listener. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it. I'm wondering if you, like, what are some of the ways that people can cultivate that skill to be a really deep and active listener? Because it's, it's so healing. Yeah. I mean, it's as easy as just listening. You know, <laughs> I I think especially when you're in a group and doing when you have written something and you're about to share it, right? There's so many, so much nerves. What am I going to say next? How should I say this? And it happens to me. I I lead this work and I still get nervous. Um, and I think it's really just allowing yourself to listen and trusting that the infinite wisdom of your spirit. And that when it comes your turn to talk, um, you're going to know what to say. And and in fact, if you're worried about like wanting to say the best thing, it will be more powerful if you have just listened. (laughs) Like you will be a better speaker if you focus on listening. It is so true. And I I think people don't even realize that a lot of times that that is what's getting in their way is that fear of Mm -hmm. how we're or what am I going to say next? Or how does this look? It's so subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. So until we really start looking at that work and realizing like when you, so tying back to the happiness, if relationships are what are making us happy as humans, these deeper connections are going to give us better relationships. Exactly. But it's, and it's like, it seems so simple, but man, are there so many things getting in the way of having conversations conversations like like this one that you don't realize and see i always go back to the nervous system Mm. that until we have that safe space where our nervous system can come down and we can have this human connection and i you know then that takes me back to your um, to the hospital right i mean so the ways that we're not cultivating that safety in american society yeah and the listening we don't listen to one another in american society yeah which you know one of the tools of narrative medicine is you you actually listen to things some things twice so you know the icebreaker is just tell a story but you can use a poem or prompt and you read it through the first time and the first pass you just choose a phrase or sentence that hit you and then you read you do a closer reading again and then after that second reading you would have a prompt like what does it, you know, what does it feel like to be free? Something related to the poem or the prose you just wrote, uh, read. So listening to something even twice over is one of the ways narrative medicine helps cultivate the tool of deep listening. Um, yeah, so there, like you said, there are w- ways to, it is so important for connection. Um, and it is something we have to cultivate because our... We're, yeah, we're not taught how to listen. <laughs> our, our, our days are going so fast and there's so much coming coming in. There's yes. so much content. There's so many stories. There's so many things we have to do. There's so many things we have to do for security reasons, for just to like get through our day that it, it, yes. it keeps us away from that. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm curious though, you said you'd done a little work with veterans, but what other like veterans and what other, what groups have you worked with um, in the narrative medicine space? Yeah, so it's been other healthcare workers I focused on and um, co specifically combat veterans who mm -hmm. were suffering from PTSD and um, suicidal ideations. Wow. As a result of moral injury, actually. It was specific to moral injury. Oh, can you explain a little bit more about that? What is moral what injury? Moral injury, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to use, I always want to paraphrase it with Michelle's definitions, which you, and you Google yeah. it, you'll have a, a, um, a more linguistically bound definition. Um, yeah, moral injury is when your values are not in alignment with your actions. And so how that plays out with, you know, that's maybe oversimplified, but how it can play out with a soldier is you know, they're going to protect their country and, and, you know, to do good and to be brave. And in that act war, you know, they may have had to hurt someone. They may have had to kill someone. They may have had to leave someone, you know, they had to do things that was not in alignment to their values. I hope you're enjoying this conversation on what I meant to say, produced by my company, Be Better Media. To see the world of why we are striving to share inspired edutainment, I invite you to please check out our website, BeBetterMedia.tv. Here you will find all kinds of great stuff from upcoming new productions to lifestyle products and services I personally use and endorse, to links to great books and other podcasts I love and recommend. Please check us out at BeBetterMedia.tv. That's BeBetterMedia.tv. Um, and that has interesting effects on the human spirit um, that modern wisdom has separated from a psychological wounding. Yeah, that sounds like really a separation from your true self, right? Yeah, yep, yes, okay. yeah. And I mean, you can definitely see how that would play out on the battlefield and- Of course. I also I get really I'm I'm very interested because I, we've done some work with veterans here and and they inspire me on such a, oh, a deep level. Well, yes, I mean it. I think that they show other Americans like wow if if these guys are capable of healing and walking this yes treacherous healing path, then any the rest of us can follow. Mm -hmm. And, and they're it. just so brilliant and so creative. Like, yeah. Oh, hit I mean, on they, that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was, I remember I was working with yeah, these combat veterans and there was a whole bunch of flies and they taught me how to catch and release flies. Oh. These were Marines teaching me how to catch and release. You know, most people are going to swat and kill flies. These are Marines <laughs> teaching me how to catch and release flies. It was just like, yeah, I... And I any, any any problem I had, they it was just as out of the box solved for. And I was just like, you guys are pandy, brilliant. Like, oh my, like our society needs you back healed and at full capacity contributing. Because you have, yeah, and they unlike have so much more to contribute post mission, from yeah. what I have seen, and these are just coming through stories and really meeting and getting to know these guys coming through 
what they come through on their missions. And when they come home, they have so much to contribute and knowing what they go through when they come home. Yeah. Um, it's like, we need to do a better job helping them assimilate because they have so much to offer. Yeah. They're worthy of so much of our praise and to hear you describe them that way. Cause I don't think I would, you would never hear somebody call them, you know, creative, um, that like you, yeah. Generous, compassionate. Look, I was teaching them narrative medicine. I was having them read poetry and, and then write a response to that. I had one, he was in the army. He was, you know, he was driving the tanks and he kind of like, he had the muscle. He looked like a tank driver. He was like yeah. muscular and big and kind of box shaped. He was, his, you know, forearms was like the size of my neck. Um, and he was so resistant to be in my little narrative medicine workshop to the point at the first class, he was holding his pen so tightly it broke. He broke his pen just by the pure resistance oh, of like having to think about poetry and relate to emotions in this way. Okay. By the end. So, and this was like five days by day five or seven, I forget. He was writing the most beautiful reflections. Yeah, all of us were weeping as a result. He was weeping as a result. I mean, it, and he was like, I didn't know I had this in, inside of me. And it was like this wellspring of poetic beauty. Like, and it, yeah. Right. And all you just took me on that nervous system journey again, because yeah. we do not realize what we can what we hold in our bodies. And he was showing you by breaking that pen. I've seen people crush wine glasses in their hands. Oh, wow. Like I've been at a dinner and I'll be like, this, I'm like, Whoa. my heart breaks. Cause I'm like, yes. well, that's what it feels like to be you in this social situation. And you just crush yeah. it. And yet that same thing with broken pencil. And then somehow the safety that you create allows that person to come down. Yeah don't think people realize how much unleveraged potential is out there because mm -hmm. we're not creating those safe spaces for people to be who they are. Exactly. And to draw, bring home to your point, connect, right? Because it wasn't just me, me and, you know, this one gentleman, it was a group of veterans and, you know, and they were connecting with each other and seeing an example of other, you know, men and women being vulnerable and that yeah. synergistic effect of connecting and vulnerability vulnerability and healing and taking that journey together i think you know is one of the power we see in yeah. these narrative groups versus like a one-on-one -on -one yeah session. what are some of the things that you think we can do in society to help create these spaces where people feel better about sharing their story Hmm. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it depends on the group, right? And so I think the group of people who, you know, the more um, masculine presenting uh, in stereotypes the group is, the harder they are going to have in my experience, the harder time they have um, opening and being vulnerable in this way. So I think it it takes, you know, 
un- unlearning stereotypes, unlearning concepts of themselves. Like he, this one combat veteran did not want to be in this class. He had, he told me, I have nothing to contribute. This is not me. Mm. Right. And he had to unlearn that story he was telling himself. And by day seven, he was on his own writing poetry by the river. It was like he unlearned that and was a new him. And he was, his energy was just so much gentler and softer and open. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so and what that does for families, for family systems, for communities, that's what I'm after in this generational learning and healing. And that's what I hear coming through your story. And I was so drawn to it because it's like, it's not just that one person, it's that ripple effect that they yeah. have out into their societies and their communities and their families and going back to those relationships. I mean, it's a totally different experience with that man once he's been through what you led him through. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And he gets to bring that home and he gets to be an example to his sons that he, you know, wrote about, wrote poetry and wrote about his feelings and read it to his wife, you know, and relate to her in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. And how do we remove those labels of like, this is masculine and this is not, I mean, you know, I mean, or, or at least yeah. disassociate with them to let us. Yeah. You know, I think it takes people who you trust um, leading by example, right? I can sit here and, like, I don't, I am not convinced that had I just been one-on-one in a vacuum with, um, you know, that army, you know, mm-hmm. tank driver, that he you know me kind of a petite younger woman would have given any fucks about what i i don't know if i'm allowed to say yeah no you 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 know (laughs) you know but it that wasn't the container we created he had peers he had other vets of all generations and he got to see them do it first you know no one put no one expected him to do it first and if he would have resisted the whole time that would have been okay too um but he got to see them do it first and he got to kind of relate to some of their stories right and their emotions and therein lies that's what i always the narrative medicine right yeah and i mean from the first time i wrote a blog i realized that when you put your story out there and you're so afraid to do it and you think or at least this was for me i i didn't think I wanted, I, I didn't want the attention. I didn't want people to think I wanted the attention. Oh, it's less than humble. And all of those things that get in the way, right? All the imposter yes. syndrome, all the stuff. And, um, but what you realize the second you put that story out there is you, most of the time you don't hear from the shame on you's first. You hear the, oh my gosh, me too. I've thought that, I've experienced that, I've been there. Yes. And the, the growing and the healing yeah <laughs> i love i love that you said you don't hear from the shame on you first that's so funny you still kind of hear from they come, they come they yeah come, especially when you start hitting on big stuff that matters yes that's what i'm realizing yeah but you know that's part of ch- charting your own unique course right i mean yeah we don't have to be for everybody but we exactly. do have the safe space and this the group of people i've always told my kids like being popular is overrated like yeah oh yes of course right 
Like yeah. when you're young and you want to be in the cool crowd and you want to be popular, or if that's coming through for you and like in high school and junior high, I mean, I've had four kids now. Well, we joked when the last one came through junior high, I was like, okay, we finished. <laughs> We're done. Right? But yeah. Like, you don't, you just need your small group. You need your handful of people that you know have got your back. Exactly. My mom would always say, you just need one friend. Yes. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I've prayed for that for my kids and so many yeah. things because it does. That is, it, it, it's so important. Yeah. It, I love that. You want to, yeah. parents are such a, a key um, component to the way that we grow up. Of course. Yeah. And um, parenting is always something that comes through too on these, in these um, conversations. And I, can you tell me a little bit about your mom? That, that, oh, oh sure that yeah awesome. that got me that yeah. got me so uh, yeah my mom was is brilliant you know she was a brilliant woman she skipped a grade um when she was young and yeah I wonder you know but uh, in her time she did what you know women do she had her family focused on that um but then she later on did get her master's she's a social worker um and you know ran uh ran the social work uh early start program in the tri-counties uh california so santa Bar santa barbara um ventura oh. county and okay. yeah whatever the third county of tri-counties is yeah <laughs> um, yeah so yeah <laughs> probably san luis yeah exactly yeah. yeah so she did that and um yeah Beautiful. I, you know, I often reflect though, she was, is so brilliant. Like now that women kind of have, get to lead more and get to really express who they are more, like who she would have been today. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think my father got, a, he got to live out his career, right? And she didn't, she had a career. She's brilliant. And I don't think you could have stopped her from having one yeah um but she took a lot i mean yeah she raised us right yeah and as it, as that generation that was that whole generation absolutely yeah. and you yeah. know i've always said i don't know where i heard this quote you you you, you can have it all but you can't have it all at once mm. and that resonates for me a lot i mean my kids are bigger but it, it is it's it's a balancing act yeah and to see you know but you can see like what she was teaching you it clearly it came through in the person you are and in the career yeah I mean, these aren't too far apart and exactly yes. that led you where where you ended up yep exactly yeah i'm very lucky yeah that's really cool so um there was something that caught my ear too is that that concept of unlearning yeah and I saw that i think i saw it on your linkedin where you called <laughs> yourself a, um, a scholar of unlearning <laughs> and that that resonated with me a lot because i think you know, for all the things that we do learn, we hit a certain point in life. And I don't even know how old you are. I know you're a lot younger than me, but that started, I started realizing that that was really something that not believing all the things about ourselves or the things that society has told us is really part of becoming a better person, right? Yeah, exactly. I think for me, uh, I'm 36. Okay. I, I, I look a lot younger, so I like to say my age. Um, yeah, for me, it started with uh, Buddhism, and I, I'm not a Buddhist, but I love Buddhism. I and it, yeah, it, it's this parable where, you know, um, before enlightenment, 
use uh, the person before enlightenment sees the mountain as a mountain once they are enlightened they see that the mountain is not the mountain after enlightenment they see the mountain as a mountain again and it was just kind of this like yeah this playfulness around you know our ideas of knowledge and, and what we do know you know and then as you, <laughs> growing up at a time where research was like vitamins are great vitamins don't help i definitely take your vitamins you're gonna live to 100 take the you know and it's just like you know these macro messages of like what do we know when do we know it yeah, yeah. and then and then it's kind of looking to see how society is organized right like the final like litmus test is you know you see the disparities and and how disconnected we are and how much pain people are in and you know, I had the opportunity as a nurse to be a nurse for the ultra high net worth, right? So rich and famous and seeing how miserable and unhappy they are. So then it was like, even like success and riches is not actually it, you know? So what, what is it? And it, it is this unlearning, you know, unlearning of everything, everything wow. we are told, yeah, you know, the mean- systems of these structures the way we organize ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Two things like came through for me there. And like one, the first one was like, maybe it is just even for us real deep thinkers, it's like not taking ourselves so seriously and thinking we know. Yeah. Exactly. Being open to like, I really don't know. That has to be the predisposition. Yeah. And I've told that so many times I'm like, cause I, I love to read. I love to learn. And the more you learn, the older you get, the more you realize you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. And it's freeing in a lot of ways. If you, but knowing yourself allows you to have that confidence to just keep playing. And and there's, I use Buddhism, but there's this interesting concept of Christianity in Christianity um, that the whole idea of Christianity is you're constantly having to crucify your idea of who God is. Right. So once you feel you understand God, you know, that's that's the Christian story. God is crucified. Right. And Jesus. So you're constantly killing this idea of God because you cannot know you can you cannot know God. So you have to constantly be killing it. You have to constantly be dying to it. And, you know, so for me, I'm informed a lot about by like the wisdom of religion. So the, this humility of like once you think you know something, uh, you know, truth. Right. You kind of you constantly have to be crucifying that. And staying open, because there's how are you know how will the finite know the infinite, right? How how are we to know anything? And you see that in science. Science is constantly overturning itself, right? So it, you have you have to be very proud um, to feel we know anything at this point. You know, I was yeah. asked I was asked today about you know this question about suicide and and how do we you know how do we know, you know, who's going to commit suicide? Uh, what treatments are going to work? We don't. Yeah. Someone, someone tells you they know. You know, <laughs> there's so much we don't know. You know, and, and not to put us in despair or paralysis, but we have to have humility. And we have, like you said, you have to lead with, with this humility and this with, you know, this is why I think this, but ultimately I don't know. I could be wrong. you're hitting on something really big that we were actually talking about in the office this morning before we started this and it's like Mm -hmm. this the space of 
social media and short form content and yeah. how there's such a, for me, what I, part of what I've struggled with is there seems like there's such a lack of humility in that space. And yes, how do we get the deeper meaning? If that's how people are taking in content and actually thinking that maybe there's a little bit of wisdom in it, <laughs> which I have formed some great friendships, I will say, but I didn't grow up in this place. Like I think yeah. of this generation and I think this is, this is so much of their day. Yeah. And the voices that are out there are brash and unafraid. And yet the really intelligent ones, like these kinds of conversations, and I'm not accustomed. I've had to, I've crushed through a lot of imposter syndrome to be able to have these conversations. <laughs> so I thank you. But like that space of social media and, and the lack of humility there. And how do we cultivate deeper connection when we know that's the way that that society that is the way that the next generation is taking in their content yeah you know so i'm i'm more nuanced about this you know i i have been with uh, i've been at dinner parties with uh, the researcher at nyu who uh, his name's evading me but he basically thinks social media is the ill of the youth and that's why they're all fragile and that's why they're all you know, have poor mental health. And while I believe there's some truth in that, mm -hmm. surely, right? Something is amok right now <laughs> with mental health. Um, I I do kind of lead with innovation, right? So I always think there's a way we can partner with where the future of the youth are going, right? And it's not us to like, wagger, that's not good for you. Mm -hmm. But it, it's how, how do we pair how do we gift them what we've learned so they can take it with them and incorporate it in what's to come? Um, yeah. So if that answers your question, right. You were yeah, saying like, you, I, you, I love that. I yeah. love that the gift of wisdom and leaving a legacy, but you know, stepping out in that space and creating the conversations that, that they will listen to, it comes from a place of real authenticity. You know yeah. I mean? Yes. And it reminds me of, um, you know, the linguistic truth of how you get from a pigeon to a creole. Uh, so creole is, you know, certified language. It's, it's what's considered as actual language. And a pigeon is a mishmash of two different languages that doesn't follow the rules of grammar. Um, so, you know, if you or I were to go move to an island with uh, a different language, we would form a pigeon. And then our kids would develop a Creole. They would be able to take like the pieces of both languages that, you know, as adults we've created and innately form an actual language that follows the rules of grammar just from the brain and programming. Like, I don't, I'm not sure we know how it's done, but that's what I see is gonna happen, right? So we are going to give them a mishmash of our learnings and they're going to take the brokenness of the social media and somehow like innately because the brain is so plastic and cool and especially when people are young they will be able to create something good and real that is formative yeah that is the best answer i have ever heard as an optimist <laughs> i that was it had so much science in it that 
I'm like, I'm inspired. That was amazing. <laughs> I love it. I'm using that. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm credit you. That's incredible. Yeah. And I truly believe in, you know, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and the way that we can come through things better. Yes. Um, so yeah, you just took that between generations and that, that, that kind yeah. of just blew my mind. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad. So cool. So cool. Um, so some of the things, I mean, there's so much here that I'm like, <laughs> I'm having a hard time like training in my thoughts, but um, there's such a, I, I, I hesitate to say lack of ego because mm -hmm. I think to help to get to the level and, and help people the way that you do, you have to have a healthy sense of ego. But I think like, what are some of the ways that people can come into a space in that space of unknowing and truly be helpful leaders? Like, I, I see there's, I don't yeah. want to say there's a void of that, but yeah. I, I hope it's clear, but like your lack of, of, cause you, you command your space, but you have a, a there's just a, a, a calmness about you. Yeah. 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 I, first of all, I appreciate you reflecting that cause that um, is what I would hope. Um, again, I, I attribute um, how I show up to like the land of that raised me, which is Hawaii. Like I, I, feel so lucky to have gotten to grow up, grow up in that, um, with that culture and with those values. Um, yeah, so I have a competitive advantage in being, <laughs> joking using that word, in, in being a, a, um, a thoughtful human. Um, I think that this is a question that I've thought about a lot, right? Because I was drawn to healthcare to heal and I found it so unhealing. Um, and then I was like, well, let me change systems through business. And then I found the business practices to be corrupt for lack of better words. Right. And I was like, Oh, well this, this is why, you know, like the, there is no leadership. There is no morals. Um, yeah. So how do you do it? I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I think, probably the first thing, you know, and you kind of hit on this with like ego, right? My ego is, is doing shadow work is that, you know, of course I have an ego. Of course I've hurt people. Of course I've made bad decisions. You know, of course I've been greedy. Of course I've been mean. I've been all of it. Right. And um, really looking at that and healing that and understanding my capacity for that is how you don't transmit it onto other people and is how you don't transmit it onto other systems. And I, I think to tie it into social media, social media is a perfect example of how we all pre pretend that we're okay and we're good and that we're happy all the time and that we're in love and you know, we sometimes like jokingly make fun of ourselves, but only if it looks cool enough, uh, you know, still kind of paints you in a cool way. Um, and we, there is no, we don't publicly do our shadow work or do it at all. And we need to be like the, to me, the cornerstone of, of leadership and being a moral leader is, is knowing your dark, like you can't sit in the dark with other people if, if you haven't sat in the dark yourself. Um, and, and yeah, if you're not in touch with your own darkness or you will transmit it onto other people and you'll be unaware of it. And, and yeah. it's, that's what's, that's business in America is just 
unhealed people transmitting their trauma. Um, and that is healthcare as well. Because <laughs> it's, yes. it's a business. Uh, there are a lot of good people in business and there are a lot of good people in healthcare, but. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. it's finding that level of consciousness within any of those environments yeah. that us move ourselves forward. And that shadow work, we don't talk about it enough. Yeah. And you have to find safe places to practice it, but absolutely it needs to be out among the connected in yeah. in those things like you were describing yeah yeah so that and that leads us the narrative medicine would seem to be a beautiful place to be able to do that shadow work Am exactly right? yeah. yeah oh yeah that, yeah I mean, I mean mine started with journaling you know exactly. and, and, yeah so yep. people don't realize that you can also there are tools to just get started on your own and then yep. start to you know seek out people that are of like mind that want to do that work with you yeah so um one of the concepts when i came up with this podcast space um was really on this generational learning aspect mm -hmm. of, of talking to people at different points in their lives because we all face different challenges at different points right and and yeah. we use those things to help us um be better for having gone through them and give ourselves grace for the things that we didn't know at the time and what we learned. So exactly. Yep. Yeah. So one of the questions I always like to ask um, my guests is like, what is a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Yeah, that's funny. Um, I thought about this question before and I wrote things down, but I'm, I'm trying to see in the spirit of what we talked about if something new is, is coming up sure um yeah and i think yeah i think um for me it would it would just be to fail fail miserably you know it's like i i think there's a perfectionism to this culture right ties into the ego um where and ties into the you know our program nature to follow a certain narrative of how life should be that um we f we follow how we think things are supposed to be and we don't allow ourselves to fail and feel hard and feel miserably you know and yeah and that is the antithesis to innovation you know, like a lot of a lot of great innovations have been mistakes, you know, like penicillin came from like accidentally leaving cheese out or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. So, you know, they're mistakes. But like, what about and I think we could improve at a greater velocity if we didn't just allow for mistakes, but we were more courageous about failing um, and intentional about like, you know, like you said, in your journey of doing this podcast, there was a lot of that fear, you know, and yeah. like, yeah. So for myself, uh, yeah, I just, I would have failed. I would have allowed myself to fail. I, you know, I, I, for me, I think nursing, I trust that I became a nurse for a reason and I'm going to do so m much good, as much good as I can with all that I was, um, allowed to the suffering and pain I was allowed to be with but I think if I would have allowed myself to fail I would have done a stem 
I would have done math and science. <laughs> you have a brilliant brain, that's for sure. To have yeah. all, it's amazing. It's it's really cool to watch because you yeah. also have a philosopher's brain. So it's like all of the math and science and the way it comes out in your words. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So I just would have been great. I played it safe like because I, I wanted to get good grades. And I, that was what I was supposed to do. And so I took the things that were easy. I did easy class, you know, easy classes, nurse easy, you know, and then I thought I was supposed to be home with my kids. So nursing would have allowed that time, which I want to be home, you know, with my kids, but it was more of the programs way, you know, there's this beautiful picture on Vogue, uh, the cover of Vogue UK this week of Rihanna. And she is, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but she's, yeah, please leave this in the, in the links. Um, she is leading her husband, you know, it's a, her and her husband, her husband is behind her. She is leading him. She's taking giant steps forward. He's taking small steps. He's holding the baby. He's kissing the baby. And she just has this powerful, like leader stance. And it's just, yeah, I get chills thinking about it. Cause I did too. That was redefining womanhood and he's getting, you know, ASAP's getting to redefine like masculinity and what it means to be a father. And it, it's so beautiful but um yeah so i was afraid you know too much fear yeah too much fear yeah um, for sure i can yeah. with that and it's cool whenever you let it go just a uh, little yeah. bit by little bit or if it's all in you know one moment you can when you let it go it, it does give way to a lot of really beautiful things yeah i agree so, um, you know, the last question I really want to ask you, um, cause I could go on forever, but <laughs> um, yeah, same. With, your space, with your space in healthcare, mm-hmm. um, what is your hope for mm. change in where we are right now? Because this mental health crisis is so real and it's all connected. I mean, it's all- I I almost I'm I'm starting to not like the term mental health just because it's like when you realize it's mind, body and spirit. It's however, however you want to put it. It's all connected. Um, But what's your hope for where we're going? So yeah, my hope is this is going to be a very like top of the faucet answer. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown, who's this uh, beautiful. black author feminist thinker activist one thing she said that has just always stuck with me is we are living in a white man's imagination right and the more i've gotten into you know more decision making rooms in healthcare the higher up i've gotten my careers it is me and a bunch of white men like the zooms are old white men and me, and I don't even think they necessarily like me, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sure, like, which is fine. Okay, you're challenging that. I don't want that to distract what I'm trying to get at is top of the faucet, faucet is we are living in their imagination. They get the money, they make the decisions, they get the funding, they give the funding, they get to decide what to fund, right? And that trickles down to the solutions, and that trickles down to how the solutions get to patients and the kind of solutions get to patients, the type of creativity. What, you know, what we're funding research on, oh, by the way, research is mostly done on white males until like past five years, they've been more critical about that in IRB boards. Um, so we are living in a white man's imagination. My hope for mental health and healthcare in general, general is we find ways to engage new imaginations because we can look around and see where that imagination has got us. Now, 
I'm not saying we need to like delete this imagination, but it's we need to bring it into balance, right? We need to allow other imaginations to be engaged. And I think that we will effortlessly come to create solutions when we can balance whose imaginations are creating a reality. Wow. That gave me chills for the 19th time last hour. That is so amazing and true to what I believe. Yeah. And in a way that we just have to create that safe space, we can't do this with just charts and graphs and saying like, check the box. We have to allow people to be able to talk. Exactly. Give them the platform to be able to be heard. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that just makes so much sense. Like what you said so brilliantly, um, and I'm sure, yeah, you will, you know, you are identifying people and I can tell because you've chosen me, right? And I do, I do not look like the stereotypical person in power in society right now. And you are giving them a space to talk and you're engaging their imagination. And I want to thank you because that's all it takes. And I, you know, I've worked alongside and with marginalized communities and I am, you know, yeah. queer and white woman myself. I have some privilege, I have some non-privilege, but you know, uh, well, let me walk back a little. I was at a meeting the other night talking about moral leadership with two white men, right? And I have this, you know, I substack moral health, right? And they they called the meeting to learn more about moral health, and they talked the entire meeting. And then at the end, they're like, uh, and when I started talking, I was like, do you guys realize you, you're here to talk to me about my idea, and you have t- talked the whole meeting? And then one of them was like, well, I guess, you know, when I get nervous, I just fill in the space. Right. And I, I, I share that story because I think like I had some compassion for that because it was honest, but that's what's happening. So I think part of my call to engage new imaginations is one, like, I don't, there has to be compassion that some people haven't had the space to talk so they don't have the nervous system or the muscle memory of how to take up space in a room and how to give their ideas right because they've never had the opportunity to do it even when they're called about a meeting to talk about their own idea they're not given the space to do it and so there has to be compassion for both sides um and knowing that people you know the people who aren't given platforms to talk have a lot to say we just have to make sure to shut up even if it makes you really nervous for some silence like they will start to talk eventually you know it's just a balancing of wow that dance yeah Yeah. and i mean i will say i i never realized that i created this space because i very much like you say we all have i have a lot of privilege but other areas not and i created this space because it was something that i had never felt i Mm. had and I so want I didn't know that when I did it, but the mm. more I had these conversations, I realized, wow, I just want people to be able to be heard. Yeah. And story. Because it really is so healing. And it's brought full circle in this conversation with, like I said, until I had never heard the term narrative medicine, but intuitively, energetically, I, yeah. I it was out there. Yeah. People talk about re- remembering, remembering things that they never knew, right? 
Yes. Because you've been doing it. You are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I thank you so much. I, I would love to stay connected on this topic and we could go on hours because you're doing brilliant work. And I just, I love this. I think it's so necessary and um, amazingly healing for people in America right now. And they really need to hear thank it. Thank you. Yeah. It's a gift. And, and thank you for using your voice and platform this way. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I just love the work that you're doing out there. And um, you're just a wonderful representation of um, what, how I sum up what we're doing here at Be Better Media. And I just want to encourage people to be real, be you, and be better. Mm, love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to What I Meant to Say. If you enjoyed this conversation, you know what to do. Subscribe, rate, review. And for more great content, courses, and lifestyle, go to BeBetterMedia.tv. Some of these stories contain sensitive content about real-life events, and all of the information in this podcast and from anywhere on the Be Better Media website is for informational purposes only. If you find that you need help, which we all do from time to time, please reach out to a licensed professional for help.